Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is April 13th, 2015. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Um, although throughout the show, I'm going to be deferring to our co-hosts. Uh, joining me in our, our virtual studio from all over the planet is uh, Doug, Erica, Gabby, and Tiffany. And um, today our topic is uh, gut health. We're going to be connecting the dots about gut health and going through some uh, important topics regarding that, talking about the makeup of the digestive tract, um, talking about production of neurotransmitters in the gut, um, uh, uh, disorders with the gut and how to work with those, and uh, some more important information. So first, uh, I believe we want to start with kind of a recap of some of the things in the news from this week. And uh, Tiffany is going to start us off with a really crazy story about the first ever head (laughs) transplant. Yeah, this comes from the files of absolute ridiculousness. Uh, There's a story on SOT titled, Russian Man to Undergo First Head Transplant. So this man's name is Valery Spiridinov. Bless his heart, he's about to become the first victim of head transplantation (laughs) operation. Um, This guy suffers from something called Wernick-Hoffman disease, which gradually wastes away muscles, and he wants to undergo the head transplant to give himself a chance of living in a healthy body. Uh, this procedure is supposedly going to be carried out by the controversial Italian neurosurgeon, uh, Sergio Canavero, sometimes referred to as Dr. Frankenstein, <laughs> who said that the first head transplant will be possible in the year 2017, so we're getting close. Um <laughs> The procedure is supposed to work like this. There's been some other articles run on site about uh, head transplants. Um, So this is how the procedure goes. The donor ideally should be brain dead, and the recipient um, maybe even to to agree to undergo such a procedure was probably even functionally brain dead. But let's just (laughs) stick with that. Um, They're going to cool down the two bodies to preserve them. They'll slice open the necks and connect the major blood vessels and reattach the spinal cord and its bundle of nerves and then stitch the necks shut and put the patient in an artificial coma for four weeks to facilitate healing. And that sounds pretty simple. <laughs> but there's been some other weirdo doctors that's been experimenting with head transplants on dogs and there was one neurosurgeon i think this was in the 70s he did a head transplant using monkeys and the monkey lived for nine days but there wasn't any information on what constituted living for the poor monkey Mm. um it might be just me but i thought that once you cut somebody's head off that meant that they died (laughs) but even if you do reconnect the head to the new body as fast as you can wouldn't the person be brain dead which would negate the whole purpose of the operation and then there's the issue of tissue rejection and that brings up the question which part of the body would be doing the rejecting? Would the head be rejecting the body or the body rejecting the head? Probably so. Both. Back to <laughs> back to the 
back to the article, um, Arthur Kaplan, who is the director of medical ethics at New York University's Langone Medical Center, uh, he described Dr. Canavero as nuts, and he believes <laughs> that the bodies of head transplant patients would, quote, end up being overwhelmed with different pathways in chemistry than they are used to, and they go crazy. Yeah. So uh, this isn't going to work. <laughs> I think that's a good Maybe thing. they got the idea from Mars Attacks where they placed the dog head on the human body. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow, boy. Yeah, freaking Where out. where is this taking place in what country? Uh, I don't know. It might be in Italy. That's where Sergio okay. Canavero, the mad scientist doctor sure. is based. Yeah, because it seems like they've obviously they, they must have had to have outlined, you know, this uh, complex medical procedure for it to be even approved in the first place. I wonder if they're doing some kind of mm -hmm. co complex bypass to keep the brain alive, or who knows? Yeah, like uh, artificially stop the heart, and and then once they get everything all hooked back together, push oxygen back into the brain. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I read somewhere that the whole that. operation takes about 36 hours, and that oh. it involves like hundreds of doctors. They're, they're going to have hundreds mm -hmm. of people on hand, like like helping out with the procedure. It's crazy. Mm. Maybe this will result in something like in uh, Futurama, where you can just put your head in a jar. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really like misguided because it it comes from that whole myth about the idea that the you know human being is really like the whole body is just a life support system for the brain like there's nothing yeah. you know every everything else is just completely interchangeable and like you know it like it really doesn't look at the the human body as like a holistic you know thing something that like you know needs all the different parts in order to keep on functioning it's like this idea that uh -huh. no we're just our brain there's nothing else just the brain mm. yeah well, it's doomed to failure, but it was interesting nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had some uh, some other articles from this week. Uh, I know, Gabby, you had a, a couple that you wanted to review. There was one about apple cider vinegar. Oh, yeah. We published an article this week and thought about, you know, it's the 32 health benefits of apple cider vinegar. And some of them is backed by research, by science, and it's very interesting because, you know, with apple cider vinegar, you can heal or you can help yourself with lots of ailments, and it helps you save on supplements. For example, mm -hmm. backed by scientific research, we have that apple cider vinegar increases the absorption of more minerals, which is very important if you're restricting your, you know, your sugar intake, if you're on the ketogenic diet. Also, it has cancer-fighting properties. It is a natural disinfectant and bacteria killer. It also prevents cardiovascular disease because it uh, has malic acid, which is which has anti-inflammatory properties. Cardiovascular disease is mostly an inflammatory condition, and it also sensitizes your insulin, you know, which is your hormone to deal with sugar. It helps you keep your teeth clean. 
And, well, the list is very long. It's actually fascinating because you can do all kinds of things with apple cider vinegar. You can use it as an energy drink, you know, to treat inflammatory conditions, to improve digestion, you know, of meat and fat, to heal uh, your gut. And the authors recommend you take one or two teaspoons in diluted in water, distilled water. And if you find the taste um, unpalatable, you can add some xylitol or, you know, uh, stevia. And, uh, yeah, I highly recommend you guys check this out because, you know, all kinds of ailments and things and really cheap. And ideally, people should use organic apple cider vinegar and not the commercial one. So, yeah, that's pretty fascinating. A good brand is uh, Bragg's apple cider vinegar, the kind with the mother in it. It has the little mm-hmm. brown streaks down at the bottom. supposed mm-hmm. to be really good for you. You can also use it as a hair rinse, like after you're finished yeah. washing your hair. kind of lends shininess to your hair. It also yeah. um, it breaks down the buildup if you use shampoo. So it will take all the buildup mm-hmm. from shampoo out of your hair as well. Yeah, apparently it's very good uh, for the acid balance of the skin and your hair. So it helps to fight dandruff. Now, how many people use like shampoos that have all kinds of chemicals that promote cancer where they can be using, you know, apple cider vinegar <laughs> mm-hmm. to fight dandruff? Yeah. yeah. The other one that, you know, strikes my attention is this natural remedy for shingles, you know. So how many people use, like, drugs, antiviral drugs that kill your DNA when you can, you know, just apply apple cider vinegar to the shingles, you know? So, yeah. Pretty good. Really? I know when (laughs) I was was dealing with hives for a little while, the apple cider vinegar actually worked very well in combating the itching. There's a a teaspoon Mm. of glass of water twice a day. (laughs) Yeah, for mosquito bites. That's also a famous one for apple cider vinegar. You can use it as a deodorant as well, you know. Even to fight warts. Yeah. <laughs> it's really like a must-have. I have used it on my hair in the past. You just want to be really careful not to get it in your eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had a friend who had to take Prilosec. I think that's a little purple pill for acid reflux. Um mm. And he started taking a tablespoon or two in water before he ate. And after a while, he didn't have to take Prilosec anymore because he didn't have acid reflux. Hmm. Yeah, it's a famous one. It's a transition into the diet where you eat more meat and especially more fat. After a lifetime mm-hmm. of eating carbohydrates, you know, you don't have enough digestive enzymes. So adding apple cider vinegar to your meat or your, to your fatty uh, cuts, you know, meat, will help you digest it. Mm-hmm. And you can actually make your own uh, apple cider vinegar. I've done this before. If you can, if you're in a place where you can get raw, unpasteurized apple cider, which is actually kind of hard to come by, unless you have a cider press and you can make your own, um, just put it in a, a mason jar with a cloth secured around the top and let it sit for anywhere from a month to two months and it'll turn into vinegar, and there you have it. Wow. Hmm. As long as it's uh, aerobic information, or uh, 
aerobic fermentation as long as the uh, the oxygen can get into the container. It won't turn alcoholic. It'll turn to vinegar. Hmm. Wow. Look at that. We have a recipe before we even get to the official recipe section. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I know we had a couple other articles we wanted to go over today. Uh, <clears throat> you guys, Who was going to do the next one here? I'm missing my notes. Well, I could do the one that uh, was all about bleach. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so there was an article on SOT uh, this week uh, about a new study. It's called How Using Bleach Could Be Making Us Sick. Uh, the study was published in the Occupational and Environmental Medicine Journal um, in, at the beginning of April, beginning of this month. So, uh, The study suggests that there's a variety of illnesses that may be fostered by the use of, of bleach as a cleaner. Um, researchers have investigated the correlation between bleach use in the home and the frequency of infection in uh, 9,102 kids between the ages of 6 and 12. Um, they gave the parents a questionnaire about their use of bleach and the frequency of infections um, in their children of uh, things like uh, influenza, tonsillitis, ear and sinus infections, and pneumonia. <clears throat> the prevalence of uh, single and recurrent infections was higher among children whose parents use bleach. Um, this is likely the opposite of what these parents would have expected and most of the public would expect too, um, because usually it's thought that, you know, because bleach is antibacterial, uh, you'd think that using it would uh, decrease the number of infections, not increase them. But uh, bleach uh, is actually a, uh, as well as um, antibacterial soaps uh, and cleansers are hazardous to your relationship with uh, beneficial bacteria in your gut, um, in your mouth and uh, on the surface of your skin. Uh, you have to remember that these bacteria make up the backbone of the immune system, which is the first line of defense against any of these uh, pathogens. So by using these things, we're actually harming these bacteria and getting rid of our natural defense uh, to be able to uh, protect us from these things. Um, bleach actually kills bacteria by denaturing proteins, uh, making them all clump together. And you can think about when you like cook an egg. You know, when you have an egg in the frying pan, it starts off all liquidy, and then as it cooks, it starts to, all those proteins start to kind of denature and coagulate, and it becomes more solid. Well, that's what it's actually doing to these, uh, uh, the proteins in these bacteria. Um, so the researcher concluded that the bleach um, to clean the home may increase the risk of respiratory and other infections in school-aged children, and this may indicate a public health issue. Um, it's not the first study to uh, find this sort of thing. In 2013, there was another study where a team uh, evaluated the effects of uh, household cleaning products uh, during the pregnancy of, um, sorry, use of uh, household pro uh, cleaning products during pregnancy uh, and their effects on infants. Uh, they found that the use of cleaning sprays, air fresheners, and solvents can increase risk of wheezing and infections in the offspring. Uh, there was another longitudinal study that uh, was just completed in 2007. Uh, they found that frequent use of common household cleaning sprays may be an important risk factor for adult asthma. Um, yeah, so I thought that was a pretty interesting article when, you know, you think about how crazy everybody's gotten with all this antibacterial stuff, constantly using antibacterial sprays and cleansers and these sorts of things, that they're actually um, doing more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Well, it reminds me about the MMS solution, you know, the Miracle Mineral Solution, which is mm -hmm. based on, on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And <laughs> it's very similar to what you just explained how it works. You know, the research is basically that it oxidizes your proteins, your DNA, and mm. side effects include digestive issues, you know, vomiting, you know, mouth, uh, so yeah, all kinds of people also report having pancreatic problems. It's like, it's amazing that uh, people consider it, you know, like an alternative medicine for healing numerous, you know, conditions when, right, it was like actually works more like an antibiotic, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost like napalm. It just kills everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that leads into um, kind of the next article that we wanted to share. Um, We've spoken quite frequently about vaccines. There was a great article on the 25th of February by Keith Bell called Vaccine Injury, First the Gut, Then the Brain. And um, he, he gives a little intro saying, when we think about vaccine injuries such as autism and epilepsy, we genuinely consider direct, a direct assault on the brain. But the reality may be far different when injury begins in the gut, leading to brain damage. And the article explores potential mechanisms of gut-brain injuries by vaccination. He goes on to say that neurogenerative diseases, including multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's, are strongly associated with gut dysbiosis, so an unbalance in gut bacteria. These problems are now thought to begin in the gut. Diabetes and obesity are associated with brain inflammation, and gut brain is known to be a two-way street. So diabetes and obesity are improved by reversing brain inflammation. In fact, 90% of the fibers in the vagus nerve travel from gut to brain, not brain to gut. Surprising and unsettling. And later in the show, we'll talk more about the vagus nerve. But... um, he said, so to consider a vaccine injury is beginning in the gut isn't such a stretch of an imagination. And we see this um, connection began with the controversy of uh, Andrew Wakefield several years ago. And if anyone's interested, you can search Andrew Wakefield um, on SOT. There's an interview with him about vaccine dangers. And um, he got the message out there because that's what he focused on was children with autism that had major gut issues. And uh, one kind of surprising thing that I didn't know, and maybe the listeners didn't know, but uh, with the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella, everyone kind of thought that it was um, an issue with mercury. But the author of this article says there's actually no mercury in the MMR vaccine or thermosol. So there's something else going on where the vaccines harness the body's immune system beginning in the gut, making some individuals their worst enemy. So that's probably why we see some children affected more by the MMR vaccine than others. And he goes on, I just want to read a few more things because it was really interesting. He talks about um, the fetal gastrointestinal tract was always considered sterile um, And that's why that uh, vaccination is giving 12 hours after birth, right? Because they assume there was no microbes in the gut. But um, that turned out to not be the case. Um, And kind of like what Doug said about the bleach, you know, even in pregnant women, like this could have an effect on uh, a newborn child. So he specifically mentioned the um, 
rotavirus vaccine and intestinal injury was actually called by, caused by this rotavirus vaccine and it was recently added to the government compensation program for adverse events. And then one more thing he shared was, uh, so there's a little subheading in his article, and I won't go into the whole thing, but how can gut injury lead to brain injury? And he says, let's focus on serotonin imbalance related to glutamate excitotoxicity to answer the question. About 95% of the body's serotonin is produced in the gut, not in the brain. Gastrointestinal symptoms such as constipation and diarrhea are associated with serotonin imbalances in the blood. In constipation, serotonin is retained in mucocells of the intestine, leading to low levels in the blood. And in diarrhea, serotonin is released and inflammatory. And you can read, he talks a little bit about sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, and kind of what he speculates there um, about how SIDS is uh, associated with serotonin deficiency. And uh, he also mentions Dr. Russell Blaylock, and if anyone's interested, he has a very great video about excitotoxicity in the brain and or is it is it glutamate-based microbial enzymatic interference, which is a little bit technical, but you know it's an interesting mm-hmm. lesson. So you can also find Dr. Blaylock on uh, on the shot page. And in conclusion, he said the current one-size-fits-all approach to vaccination does not factor in individual immune systems regulated by gut bacteria. In order to assess potential risk of vaccine injury, meconium and stool testing pre-vaccination to identify microbial imbalance or balance is justified. Unfortunately, vaccine scientists are concerned only with improving vaccine effectiveness and not safety. So, yeah, there there you have it. <laughs> That's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> that made me think of, like, we could uh, uh, recommend or I could recommend based on personal experience that um, the judicial usage of probiotics and uh, 5-HTP, hydroxytryptophan, um, was helpful in, in producing serotonin and stabilizing mood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Well, that uh, that leads us into our uh, our initial um, topic here, which is the makeup of the digestive tract. And I think we want to go to Tiffany for a little while. Do you want to talk about uh, what we look like on the inside? <laughs> sure. I wish I had x-ray eyes so I could really see what we look like on the inside. But, uh, so this is by no means an exhaustive explanation of the digest- digestive tract, but this will just give a picture. So um, you can picture the digestive tract as one large, long tube that goes from your mouth out through your anus. So it goes mouth to throat to esophagus, stomach small intestine and large intestine. So even though this tube, the digestive tract, is technically inside of your body, it should be considered as outside of your body because the contents that you put into this tube are not all incorporated into your body. So if you want to follow a chunk or a bolus of food for your digestive tract, um, just picture um, putting food in your mouth, chewing it, 
where it mixes with saliva and the enzyme amylase, which breaks down carbs if you're eating carbs, and then you swallow it, and it, the bolus of food passes through the esophagus, and it lands in the stomach where it churns, and it mixes with the acidic gastric juices. Um, and those include uh, HCL or hydrochloric acid, renin, which digests dairy proteins if you're eating dairy, uh, pepsinogen, which digests proteins, gelatinase, digests collagen and gelatin, gastric amylase, uh, further breakdown of carbs or starches, and then uh, gastric lipase, which digests fats. So after about an hour of churning around in your stomach, uh, the bolus moves on to the small intestine, and the small intestine is about 22 feet or seven meters long in adults when it's stretched out. Uh, the diameter is about one to one and a half inches or two and a half to three centimeters wide. And the entire surface area is about 323 square feet or 30 square meters. The most extensive parts of digestion and absorption take place in the small intestine, and the small intestine can be broken down into three parts the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. And the duodenum, unlike the stomach, is an alkaline environment, and it secretes bile juice, pancreatic juice, and intestinal juice for further digestion and absorption. Um, when you move to the jejunum, uh, it contains villi, which are small hair-like projections where uh, sugars, amino acids, and fatty acids are absorbed into the bloodstream. And the ileum also contains villi, and it absorbs vitamin B12, bile acids, and other remaining nutrients. So after about, I'd say several hours in the small intestine, the food moves into the large intestine, which is about six feet long, or two meters. Uh, the large intestine is about three inches, or 7.6 centimeters wide, and its job is to extract water and salt from your waist um, as it solidifies, as it's moving through the ascending colon, which goes up. Like if you picture it as an upside down U, the ascending colon is going up. The transverse colon is the top of the U, and then it goes down to the descending colon and then to the sigmoid colon, which is attached to the rectum, and that's where your feces or poop is stored for expulsion, and hopefully it's not stored for too long. Um, the whole process of one meal is supposed to take about 72 hours to clear. So you eat one meal. Like, say, if you wanted to track your transit time, I wouldn't advise anybody eating corn, but that's probably the best thing you could see. <laughs> like, you ate a, a meal of corn, and then you watched your bowel movements and see how long it takes for you to see corn in your poop then that will give you an idea of your, your transit time. Um, but in the small intestine itself, it's a, your, your waste matter is in there for about 16 hours. So that's how long it takes for it to move throughout the large intestine. So the large intestine, it doesn't play a major role in the absorption of food, but there is, in a healthy gut, there's... Uh, good flora or bacteria in there, and this bacteria actually creates vitamins. So 
the, the large intestine does absorb the vitamins that your bacteria creates. So that's basically from the shooter to the tutor, so they say. <laughs> that's the makeup. <laughs> now, for some neurological implications of our digestive tract, you know, uh, we have that the digestive system has, you know, an enormous amount of nerves and neurons. In fact, it has more neurons than the entire spinal cord. So it is doing things all the time, like talking or communicating with the brain. This network is called the enteric nervous system or the second brain. And this is our digestive system, basically. It's our second brain. And it also has a certain degree of independence, like our brain. So it has the ability to work in the absence of input from the brain or the spinal cord. The second brain, that is, that, that is our digestive system, uses more than 30 neurotransmitters. It's just like the brain, you know, uses all these neurotransmitters. And as Erica mentioned earlier, you know, 95% of the body's serotonin, which is our happy chemical, is found in the bowels. Um, just to remind also that our digestive tract contains like 80% of our immune system cells. So there is also trillions of bacteria living in the gut, and they are also able to communicate with our second brain. In fact, our gut bacteria is capable of affecting our brain, how our brain works, you know, to influence our mood and our temperament. And to illustrate these, like there were uh, some researchers in Canada who studied, you know, gut bacteria, and they concluded that the presence or absence of conventional intestinal microbiota influences the development of behavior, and it's accompanied by neurochemical changes in the brain. So we have that gut bacteria can influence the behavior of serotonin, dopamine, and GABA which are three brain chemicals that are involved in the main psychiatric or mood problems. So another intriguing aspect is the reverse nature of the signaling between the brain and the second brain. Traditionally, we will think that the brain is expected to signal the rest of the body, like our headquarters, so to speak. However, research has found that the second brain more commonly sends signals to the brain, you know, and this is what Erica was mentioned earlier, that over 90% of the nerve fibers in the vagus nerve carry information from the gut to the brain. And we talked briefly about the vagus nerve in our last show in the context of our areolus program, you know, available at eebreeze.com. The vagus nerve is basically the heart of our relaxing system, and this is what EE stimulates. The vagus nerve so connects the second brain to the brain and when we stimulate it, we can control, like, from epilepsy to, you know, we can release depression and stress. We improve our learning and memory centers in our brain. So, yes, keep in mind that 90% of the fibers of the vagus nerve go from the second brain to the, to the brain. So, yes, um, um, that's, I want to recap a little bit, you know, about areolas because, this goes to show, you know, how our second brain stimulating our vagus nerve is so important because um, when we stimulate it uh, with areolus, um, all kinds of people have, report, have reported all kinds of benefits, you know, 
from relieving anxiety to better dreaming, better sleeping, you know, to enhancing learning and memory. And, um, and maybe through stimulation of a vagus nerve with specific breathing exercises, the effect that this input of information from our second brain to, to our main brain results in, in bringing online like higher cognitive abilities, you know. It helps us to use, uh, to regulate our emotions uh, better, you know. We have higher emotional regulation capabilities. And um, this is because the vagus nerve just, you know, bring, brings back online all these centers in the brain, which helps us just to deal with stress better, you know. So researchers and science uh, are quoting more and more the connection between these two brains to help us understand, you know, how something so simple, stimulating the vagus nerve or having good bacteria in the, in the form of probiotics, or even how I think mean, you know a healthy diet uh, can help us heal so many different conditions, you know, from arthritis to heart disease to mood problems. And that's the other thing I want to highlight. Just because of this connection, there is research that shows, in fact, that a diet high in fat stimulates the vagus nerve. You know, researchers have found that there is a direct relationship between the intake of fat and the level of neural activity in the brain. So they discovered that, you know, you, you eat more fat and you can reduce your sadness, for example. And this is because by eating fat, you activate powerful anti-inflammatory pathways, which are mediated by the vagus nerve, and it involves acetylcholine, which has, which has very strong anti-inflammatory properties. So, yes, this is like very fascinating research. And there is one more thing I want to go through very briefly so you guys understand better, you know, the power of the vagus nerve. <laughs> is, um, there is pioneering research, you know, by Stephen Forges. Uh, he pioneered the polyvagal theory. And Stephen Forges is a neuroscientist from the University of Chicago. And um, basically, it's thanks to him that we know the fundamental role of the vagus nerve in our feelings of emotional safety, you know, he realized, uh, Stephen Forges realized that there were several aspects to the function of the vagus nerve. So that's why he named it poly from the Greek term many and vagal from the vagus nerve. So just to mention briefly his research, not going that because it's very, very complicated, but just in simple terms, you know, <laughs> He turned what um, what we now know as the smart vagus to the parts of the vagus nerve that conduct, conduct you know, uh, fast conducting part of the vagus nerve. You know, it's fibers that conduct um, electrical activity very fastly because it's coated by fat, by, by fat, by the way. And um, this smart vagus uh, is finely tuned and intertwined in sequence with the muscles of the face, with the middle ear, with the throat, with our voicing and thinking capabilities, with our heart rate and our breathing, you know. And these are all aspects that come together in synchrony through, uh, through the smart vagus nerve stimulation. And it is precisely the smart vagus that the areolas stimulate. And when we do stimulate it, we have like higher social and communication capabilities 
we feel more compassionate and we are able to work better, you know. This in contrast to a state, you know, of fight and flight or when you or when we basically shut down because we have so much stress and how we perceive the stress is very individual um for each person, you know. It's just like basically what it takes is that your body feels threatened by your environment. It can be a memory from trauma or it can be, you know, a very stressful job or, you know, all kinds of stresses for different for everybody. And uh, when we respond in a primitive way with a fight or flight response or a primitive like reptilian, reptilian signal, basically we shut down, you know, we deal with stress, we are, you know, like fainting, like with depression. And this is what he calls immobilization by fear. It's basically when you are in survival mode, really getting by through each day and you don't have appropriate appropriate input from your higher cognitive centers in your brain because the smart vagus is like shut down, it's asleep, so to speak. So this is why it's very important, you know, to stimulate your smart vagus nerve. And you can do this most effectively with a high-fat diet and with areolas, you know. It allows us to balance and engage our social behavior it helps us heal imbalances related with depression, you know, with shutting down or fight or flight. It basically engages the captain of your brain, you know, where you're able to regulate your emotions more appropriately. And there is, in fact, research that shows that people who stimulate their smart vagus nerves um, have better, you know, are better in, at regulating their emotions. So, yes, this is, this is basically a synthesis of, of this research. And, um, yeah, it's very fascinating. <laughs> I agree. It's very fascinating. I really liked how he talked about the vagal tone, how you could see the, it almost in people's faces, like you were mentioning, Gabby, from the eyes and, and the nose and kind of how... Um, you can see in people's face that, that vagal tone. Yes, and this is the the higher the vagal tone, the more smart vagus activity you have. So the better you are at regulating your emotions, you're able to work better, and it also correlates with better activity. Even for children who have autism, you know, they are more prosocial when they have higher vagal tone. So yes, this is very important. And so if your gut is irritated. If your gut is irritated, that irritates the vagus nerve, thereby irritating your brain and making you have all these uh, emotional up and downs and poor social connection. Yes, that's the, the other thing I wanted to mention because people don't don't consider, you know, the average person thinks that their diet is not a source of stress for the body. Well, actually, no. A crappy diet, you know, it's it's um it's interpreted by your body as a, a state of maximal stress, you know. It actually can have the effect of silencing your capabilities to 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 involve your smart vagus nerve, you know. And uh for example, even eating wheat, you know, gluten can decrease blood flow to your prefrontal cortex, which is where your the captain of your brain resides, you know. This is all like related to the smart vagus. So a crappy diet is really bad for your gut 
and very important, and therefore for your brain. Mm. Well, especially when you're eating a lot of uh, wheat products, you're getting those opioids. So it might seem like you're relieving stress, um, but really you're just getting a an opioid hit, um, you know, and then, it, of course, it goes away, and then you go into withdrawal symptoms. So it's, you're mm-hmm. not restoring your natural balance at all. Yeah. And then you seek out your next hit, and it just becomes a vicious cycle of yeah. up and down. Yeah. Yeah. The pizza's getting yeah. bigger. <laughs> and more frequent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chasing the dragon. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just going to mention, too, while you were talking about uh, areolas, um, that uh, <clears throat> people might be thinking it's something that you, you have to, like, do the entire program every time, which is, of course, very beneficial and would highly encourage that. But there's also aspects of the program that you can just do throughout the day. Um, like the pipe breathing aspect is just a very simple uh, in through the nose, out through the mouth, um, breathing into your belly instead of into your chest. And just doing that for a few minutes, um, you know, even if you're at work and you had a stressful meeting and you can, you know, find a quiet spot or go back to your desk and just do this pipe breathing for a few minutes, it really helps um, in those kind of moments. So it's something that can be used, you know, throughout the day on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I've used it for that. I've had uh, presentations I've had to do at work, and, you know, you get a little nervous, and then you just step aside somewhere and do some pipe breathing, and it really does calm you down. Mm -hmm. I did it just before the show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know, Doug and Gabby, you both are EE teachers as well, and um, I teach EE as well, and um, I've noticed I um, teach yoga, so I kind of can combine the the three-stage pipe breathing in my classes. And I will say that at the beginning of class, I just notice people's faces. I work at a hotel, so a lot of people are on vacation. But I can see the vagal tone in their face change by the end of the class. It's almost as mm-hmm. if the repeated use of the pipe breathing. And, you know, there are people that are resistant but at the end of class, it's almost like everybody's cha- changed. Their face mm-hmm. has changed. Okay. They're much I more agree. relaxed. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I have pictures of before and after, you know, before the instruction commences, you know, and everybody looks so stressed and so, you know, hopeless. And by the end, you know, the class or, or the seminar, everybody's like, oh, we're long, long-time friends, and everybody's smiling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really like it, yeah. <laughs> and That's that a great social idea. connectedness, that the social connectedness, you know, people are open to share their experiences and, oh, this is what happened to me and I feel so much better. And, and mm-hmm. so there is really so much benefits that people can get from practicing it and regularly as Jonathan shared, you know, even in moments of stress before a presentation or while driving, you know, if you're stuck in a lot of traffic or there's an accident and, you know, you have to be somewhere, just really like turning on to the breath and, and slowing down and and it really, it ch- changes your whole being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, if you... If you pay attention to your breathing in those stressful moments, you notice that you start coming way up into your chest, into the upper chest, and almost hyperventilating a little bit. 
Um, and of course, that tightens all of the muscles in the chest and the shoulders and around the neck, causes further tension, gives you headaches, um, and areolus just relaxes all of that. Even the simple pipe breathing does. Yeah, even if you don't actually do the pipe breathing, but if you focus on diaphragmatic breathing or belly breathing, uh, when yeah. your diaphragm moves up and down, it kind of gives your guts like a little massage all throughout the day and keeps them toned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had several students afterwards say, "Oh, I'm really hungry now. I'm ready to go and eat some food." <laughs> <laughs> It's no pizza. For that same reason, you know, um, it has such a healing effect on the gut. That's why it's used for bowel disease, you know, and and to calm down stomach aches. You know, you do consciously pipe everything, you will find out that it really helps you with the pain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, let's uh, let's go into um, some of our related uh, disorders here. Um, gut disorders. I believe, Doug, you wanted to talk about that next. We've got SIBO and a few others. Yeah. Well, before I get into the the disorders, I think I'll go into a little bit more of an explanation of the uh, the bacteria in the yeah. uh, in the digestive tract, um, because a lot of the, the disorders that happen are actually issues with the bacteria. Um, so there's about 500 to 1,000 different species of bacteria that are that reside in the bowel. Um, they total in the trillions and make up about a pound of your body weight. Um, there's some in the small intestine as well, um, but not nearly as much as there are in the colon. Um, there's actually more bacterial cells in your body than you have actual native cells, which kind of brings up interesting philosophical questions about how much of you is actually you. Yeah, who am I? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to include all those bacteria, trillions of them. Um So the beneficial bacteria are referred to as probiotics, Um, pro meaning for, biotic meaning life, so for life, as opposed to antibiotics, which are against life. Um, If you think about it, the bacteria are present on every surface around you, and uh, most of them are benign, but uh, some of them are beneficial and some of them are are actually pathogenic. Um, We introduce them to our digestive tract through the food that we eat and other interactions in our environment. I often talk about the um, when you uh, see like an infant, you know, when they're exploring their world and kind of discovering things, they always are sticking things into their mouth. That's a way of them kind of introducing this to their immune system, to their digestive system, all this different stuff. Like they're they're really kind of um, having a direct, uh, tangible um, interaction with the environment, um, and you know. Of course, parents these days are always, uh, you know, trying to discourage this and trying to stop them from doing all this kind of stuff. You know, kids aren't really allowed to play in the dirt anymore. And that's actually to our detriment because we're not, you know, having this kind of intimate interaction with our environment. Um, You know, the the immune system learns what's good and what's bad by being introduced to it. So the more we stop ourselves from being introduced to it, the, the more detrimental it is to our immune system. Um, so bacteria are destroyed by heating and processing of food. So um, this is a reason that um, a lot of, uh, you know, we're not getting as much of this native bacteria as we used to get. Um, so sometimes the balance um, of the gut bacteria can kind of go off. So uh, in a proper functioning gut, the microbial balances uh, in favor of the beneficial or the benign bacterial species. Um, 
pathogenic bacteria are always present to some degree, but they're usually kept in, in check by the good guys. So there's so many good guys that they just kind of like, you know, cordon off these bad guys and they don't, they don't actually um, make too much of a fuss. Um, but many things in our modern world can actually upset this balance. Um, things like uh, antibiotic usage, uh, that's both prescribed um, antibiotics, but also antibacterial products like we were talking about before, like bleach or antibacterial soaps, all those sorts of things. Um, there's also passive antibiotic exposure from foods, particularly meats. You know, the agricultural industry likes to feed antibiotics to their animals like their candy. So uh, <laughs> that does end up on your plate, um, and it does end up uh, destroying your own gut bacteria. Um, alcohol use, chlorinated water, well, it's always a good idea to drink filtered water or spring water. Um, <laughs> pesticides and herbicide residues on uh, on fruits and vegetables, uh, GMOs, uh, a poor diet, particularly sugar, um, encourages the uh, the growth of the pathogenic bacteria and the, the resulting death of uh, of beneficial bacteria. Um, there's also a lack of exposure to good bacteria, and I touched on this before, but, uh, you know, people don't eat things like fermented foods anymore very often, and, you know, yogurt isn't the only one out there. Um, there's lots of stuff like uh, fermented sauerkraut and uh, kimchi, um, there's all sorts of different fermented foods that uh, we should be eating quite regularly, but they kind of grown, you know, become out of favor. Um, people, and, and when, even when people do eat them, they tend to be in jars that have been pasteurized, so all the bacteria is actually dead. Um, you know, dirt, just getting outside, touching the ground, touching trees, touching plants, all that kind of stuff. You're picking up bacteria that way. People don't tend to do that so much anymore. Mm -hmm. um, eating plants right out of the ground. You know, that's kind of frowned upon now. We have to disinfect everything before we eat it. You know, back in the day, people were pulling up root vegetables and eating them. Um, you don't really see that anymore. Um, even the eating of uh, things like raw meat, you know, has really grown out of favor. People are terrified of all these uh, pathogenic bacteria that there's an extremely low um, likelihood of actually getting if you get your meat from a good source. But people do, like, you know, it's really, people don't have a taste for it anymore. Um, C-section births, actually, um, you know, when you, when the natural, uh, birth, when the, the baby actually comes through the birth canal, all through that birth canal, they're picking up, um, the mother's, uh, natural, um, probiotics. Uh, when a baby is actually born by a C-section, they miss out on that kind of inoculation. So they don't get that sort of thing, which is why you see things like C-sections being associated with like childhood asthma, um, eczema, all these sorts of things where, you know, they're not getting these, this, uh, this native bacteria from the mother. Um, and also uh, environmental pollution is another thing that can kind of uh, affect your, your probiotics. Um, just wanted to give a note here um, to people, you know, I, I, with a lot of this information, some people become very afraid of, uh, of the idea of using antibiotics. I want to just caution people that there are certainly some situations where antibiotics are a good thing. Um, you need to maybe do your research a little bit and make sure it's not just uh, some overzealous doctor who's prescribing uh, antibiotics for every cold that you get. Um, you know, make, make sure it's something that you, you actually do need uh, antibiotics for. But um, you can actually mitigate some of the bad effects of antibiotics by taking a probiotic in conjunction with them. So you actually, mm -hmm. you know, you take your probiotic um, a few hours away from taking your antibiotic so then the antibiotic is going into your body and killing off what it's supposed to kill. Then you take the, uh, the probiotic to replace all the good bacteria that it killed kind of um, by mistake or um, as a side effect. 
uh, and you kind of keep on doing that, it actually helps to, to make the uh, antibiotic work better. So it's a good idea to do that. Um, a lack of stomach acid production, uh, which tends to be chronic in uh, this day and age, uh, can lead to undigested food getting lower into the digestive tract than it's supposed to, and that will feed pathogenic bacteria. Um, so that, that can be a, a cause of um, this uh, negative bacterial overgrowth. Um, when there's a significant die-off of the good bacteria, pathogenic bacteria and fungus, um, which tend to be more opportunistic than the good bacteria, they start to spread. So it's kind of like the good bacteria die off, and that leaves space for these bad bacteria to kind of start to populate. Um, this leads to a state known as dysbiosis, which essentially means uh, like a microbial imbalance where there's an overgrowth of the pathogenic bacteria um, in the digestive tract. And this can lead to a vicious cycle because the pathogenic bacterial species take over uh, and they begin to crowd out what beneficial bacteria actually remained. Um, microbial colonies also excrete many different types of waste byproducts. Um, under normal circumstances, you know, when they don't number too many, uh, the body is perfectly capable of taking care of this. But um, as the pathogenic bacteria start to grow and um, populate, they excrete more and more of these byproducts, which uh, can overburden the body's waste removal mechanisms. Um, so the gut becomes more and more toxic. It can alter the pH of the gut, which can in turn lead to all sorts of other problems. Um, dysbiosis has been uh, associated with illnesses such as inflammatory bowel disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, obesity, cancer, colitis. Um, it's also the likely culprit in uh, digestive issues, like any number of digestive issues, uh, chronic gas, IBS, and even chronic halitosis or bad breath. Um, a lot of times that can actually be an imbalance of, uh, of bacteria. Um, it's also likely uh, part of the cause of leaky gut syndrome. Um, leaky gut syndrome is a huge topic, so I won't go into it too much. Just to say that usually, you know, the, the, the gut is very selective about what it absorbs. Um, but in a case where there's leaky gut, so that might be that there's inflammation in the gut or that uh, there's some sort of damage to the gut, um, what happens is that uh, there, there ends up being like holes um, and things that aren't fully digested or aren't supposed to be absorbed will kind of get in through these holes. Um, so an overgrowth of um, uh, pathogenic bacteria, you know, with all the byproducts that are giving off, that can damage the gut and that leads to a situation where there is inflammation and there's these things that aren't supposed to be getting into the gut getting in, or sorry, out of the gut into the bloodstream or getting in. Um, and then, of course, that can activate the immune system, and the immune system will treat these things as invaders and mount a defense against it, and that can lead to um, the, the immune system kind of overreacting to things that it shouldn't be reacting to, um, like, you know, foods or uh, pollen or, you know, any number of things that people can end up allergic to um, where it, it's not it, – it's something that should be fairly benign. Um, so that's just a, a quick – cover of, of leaky gut there. Um, there's another problem that can uh, happen in the gut uh, called uh, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, or SIBO for short. And uh, what happens is the bacteria that are supposed to remain in the colon end up backing up into the small intestine. Um, so it might be bacteria that are normally actually beneficial in the colon, but they're in the wrong environment. They're in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. uh, and they start to overgrow in that area 
Um, usually the small intestine doesn't have a lot of bacteria in it, significantly less than the colon. So if you get these overgrowths in uh, the small intestine, it can cut, start causing all kinds of problems. Um, one big problem with it is that uh, conventional probiotics all tend to contain the lactobacillus strains, and the lactobacillus strains are actually the ones that are causing the problem. They're the ones that shouldn't be there in the small intestine. Um, so conventional probiotics can actually end up making the problem worse because they're feeding um, the problem. Um, usually any, any alternative healthcare practitioners who are, are familiar with it, which uh, aren't very many, um, but they tend to, to try and supplement with non-lactobacillus species, um, particularly soil-based probiotics. Um, there's a couple of brands out there that I'll mention. There's one called Prescript Assist. Um, there's another one uh, by a company called AOR called Probiotic 3, and another one called Primal Defense Ultra, which is by a company called Garden of Life. Um, that one does have some lactobacillus in it, but it has a lot of soil-based species as well. Um, there's also uh, a number of people online who are talking about using something called resistant starch in order to heal SIBO. Um, and it's a, it's a type of fiber. Uh, it's called starch, but you actually don't absorb any of the carbohydrate because we're not able to break it down. Um, but the bacteria are, and they'll, they'll actually feed on it. And what ends up happening is you take in this resistant starch, and the bacteria in the small intestine actually jump onto the starch to eat it, to start breaking it down, and they will ride it down into the colon. So it's kind of like they hitch a ride on it. So it starts going back into the, the, um, the, where it's supposed to be. Um, so, yeah, the combination of the soil-based probiotics and resistant starch. Uh, one source of resistant starch that people seem to be quite fond of online is um, unmodified potato starch. Um, and apparently if you eat this in, like, without cooking it, uh, there is no carbohydrate to it. It is all fiber, so you won't actually absorb any of it. Um, I will point out that it is, uh, you know, potato is uh, a nightshade, so you do need to be careful with it and watch for any kind of inflammation that might, uh, might come along with it. But if you do tolerate it, it might be a good way to kind of get those bacteria back into the right place. And there is a brand uh, um, that we can get here in North America called Bob's Red Mill. I'm not sure if you can get it in, uh, in, uh, in Europe or not, but um, it is uh, modified potato starch. And you need to get the modified version. Regular potato starch will not work at this. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's kind of a little bit about SIBO. Um, that's basically what I had as far as uh, um, the uh, disorders go. Um, mm -hmm. I think that Tiffany wanted to talk about poop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't talk about the gut without mentioning poop at least a little bit. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, poop. I ask people about their poop all the time for work, so <laughs> I kind of like talking about poop. I like it when things are functioning the way they should, and the plumbing is doing well, and all the sanitation works <laughs> are doing what they're supposed to be doing. So um, there is a book, it's an incredible book called Fiber Menace. It's by... Constantine Monastirsky. Um, it's a good book. It'll tell you all you need to know about um, your gut function, probably more than you thought you even needed to know. But um, that can be bought on Amazon. But there's also a corresponding um, webpage called gutsense.org. And in in the, the webpage and in the book Fiber Menace, they uh, feature something called the Bristol Stool Form Chart. 
and they kind of break down your poo into seven, several, seven different types. So types one through seven, and they uh, give the most ideal types. So I'll just go through the different types, and I've, I'm sure I've had them all at various points in my life. But uh, type one is uh, separate hard lumps of stool, like nuts or like rabbit pellets. They're very hard to pass. Uh, they can be very painful. Uh, so type one is really not a good type of stool to have. Uh, the second type is sausage-shaped but lumpy. Um, they're kind of firm and packed in a, a single mass. Uh, there's a lot of fiber in there and some bacteria. Uh, type 3 is somewhat like type 2. It's like a sausage, but it has cracks on its surface. Uh, type 4, we're getting into more what uh, the author of the book will call normal type stools. Uh, so type 4 stool is like a sausage or a snake. It's smooth and it's soft. Uh, it's not very wide. It looks like it comes out in about the shape of uh, a colon that's not too stretched out. Uh, type 5 is uh, soft little bobs of poo with clear edges, and this is passed very easily. Uh, type 6 is uh, fluffy pieces with ragged edges, and it's somewhat mushy. And type seven is a watery stool with no solid pieces, and this is otherwise known as diarrhea. So according to people in the know about poo, um, types four, five, and six are acceptable. Uh, type five, according to the author Fiber Menace, uh, is ideal. That's what you want to aim for. So when you take a poo, don't be afraid of it and flush it down without looking at it first. Get to know your poo, look at it, see what type you have, and based on that, you can decide whether or not you want to change your diet or if your diet even needs changing. Um, if you have gut issues, you really want to you know, know what type of poo that you're passing so you can kind of figure out if you're you know, not eating enough fat or too much fat or if you're eating too much fiber and what is being digested and what is not. Um, a person, like if they've damaged their, their guts through a lifetime of bad diet, they might not be able to achieve the ideal stool type, which is the soft blobs with the clear-cut edges. Um, some people, because of uh, overeating carbs or having a lot of fiber in their diet, they become dependent on those. And when you have too much fiber, it stretches out your colon and if you switch to a keto diet really quickly, your colon is still in that stretched out uh, condition and it kind of loses its sensitization. So you're expecting to have regular bowel movements because you switch to this great keto diet, but your your bowels need a little bit of a chance to catch up and to revert back to their normal shape that they're supposed to be in. Um, there's also... Uh, Normal pooping, um, it shouldn't require any more effort than urinating, actually. If you have to strain or if you have to grunt to muster up the strength to move your bowels, this isn't normal. So 
not only is getting your diet straight important, but there's actual mechanics of pooping that people need to keep in mind. And there's actually a really good position that people should consider if they're having bowel issues or if they're not having bowel issues and they just want to maintain their bowel integrity. So we have a couple of uh, (laughs) poop experts, I guess, in our in our studio, does anybody want to talk about proper poop position? Actually, Tiff, you know, before we get to that, we've actually got a caller. Yeah. Um, with a question. Oh, okay. Um, let me just get him here. Okay, so this is Kevin. Um, Kevin, welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Hi. How is everyone? Hi, Kevin. Good. Hi, Kevin. Wow. Well, I, my my question was really about um, I was just diagnosed with high blood pressure, but then hearing the uh, the dissertation on poop or poo, as it's uh, I guess called, uh, I, I learned a few things there. Um, so I don't know. I I I, I was you know, I'm 50 years old, and I was just diagnosed with high blood pressure, and it was really up, and I had no clue. You know, I went to the doctor for a cold that I thought was lasting just a little bit longer than a cough that, that than it should. And, you know, lo and behold, my, my pressure was up sky high, and they kind of kept an eye on it for a few weeks. And then, yeah, they diagnosed me with high blood pressure. Anyway, long story short, they gave me some, uh, you know, some medication. They put me on this medication, and, and, you know, and then it went back down to, you know, well under the limit. Uh, you know, I cut a lot of salt or just, I mean, I was eating whatever anyway. I mean, for years, you know, I'm like Superman, right? Um, but I started eating pretty much, you know, the right food and getting on a good diet. And, you know, it just kind of went way down. It's, you know, it's, everything seems normal, but you know, I got this medication. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I wanted to ask, you know, and it's funny because it seems like no, no one told me, and I guess I should have asked, and I and I will ask the next time I go back to the the doctor. But you know, and, and it was the VA hospital because I'm a veteran. Uh, but you know, it just seems like there was a lack of information I was just getting. Like you know, uh, I know my mom has had diarrhea. Uh, not diarrhea. I'm sorry. Yeah, after that, you know, still in my head. But my mom <laughs> had uh, high blood pressure for years. She said since she was 16, right? And I'm like, wow. Uh, and, I, and my mom's 86 today. My dad had it as well. And he just passed. He was uh, 80. No, my mom, my, my dad was 86. My mom is 83 right uh, today. And he just passed a couple of a couple of months ago. So they both had it. They were treating it. Um, I don't know. I just feel great. I feel all right. But will you, is there a way to get, like, do you, do you have to take the medicine forever? Like, is is there, are there cases where people have come off of the medication? I don't know. So I guess that's what my question is at long last. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Yes. In fact, there are many cases where people come off from these medications and basically through lifestyle changes, mainly changing your diet. For example, if we eat too much sugar, too many carbohydrates, you know, that has an effect of retention of water in your body and it has an inflammatory effect. It raises your blood, you know, your blood pressure. 
And that's why a lot of people who, who restrict their carbohydrate intake, even moderately, they lose so many water in the first few days that they have to take minerals and more salt because their blood pressure drops and they have actually, you know, feel like fainting. So actually, and people have to come up their prescription medicine sometimes, you know, just because of this. So one of the main things to look at is, yeah, dietary changes, you know. I don't know if the guys want to add something or a book to read or oh help. Well, if you know that, notice that your your blood pressure is back in the normal range, or if it's even going lower, you definitely want to follow back up with your doctor and uh, collaborate with him or her and see if you can get off your medications. Because if you're going too low, then obviously the medicine is too strong, or you may not need it. So talk with your doctor. Absolutely. And one one last thing, um, it, it seems to me like. Uh, there was a correlation with high blood pressure in your weight and, and that kind of thing. And I know that's not the only thing to look at, but, you know, I guess at this point, you know, I walk around because everywhere you go, right, nobody, it's almost like nobody cares about us, the high blood pressure people over here. Like nothing, almost nothing is catered to us, especially when in terms of food and, and things that you can eat. It's like, you know, just that's out there. And then you see people <laughs> people walking around and every overweight. I mean, I'm not even that overweight. I mean, I, I was about 10 or 15 pounds over. But, I mean, I see people who look like they shouldn't be able to walk. They're so yeah. overweight. And I know they probably have high blood pressure or something. I mean, I guess I get a little jealous because I'm like, well, how can they be all right and just eating all this stuff? But look at the, you know. Yeah. I mean, they don't even well, look like they're, you know, so anyway. Um, it, well, they're not all right. That's just the thing. So yeah, we usually, should probably I mean, stop them and say, hey, look, buddy, you're probably not all right. I mean, and not even to be funny about it, but like just to, you know, I mean, because I care. Like I, I see these people and, I, and, I'm, and in my mind, I'm like, wow, what if they don't know? Like I didn't. I should say, hey, you know what? You know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I can I can sympathize with you, Kevin. It seems like uh, the food industry or big pharma, none of them really care about our health. But I think that the best thing that you can do is to learn as much as you can about proper health and live by an example. And that way, when somebody asks you, why are you so healthy? Why do you look so good? I notice you're not sick or you're you got off your blood pressure medications. What did you do? Then you can share that with them. Yeah. Well, well, then there should be a restructuring of of everything. I mean, I think Absolutely. it's a case of what you see is what you want, you know what I mean? And if, if there were more places out there that catered to better health, then I think we'd all be healthy. But you know what? I may as well speak Japanese or any other language that no one can understand because mm-hmm. that's what I'd be doing. So thank you, uh, guys. And great show, by the way. Great. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Great. Good to have a caller there. And uh, do we have another question? No. We do? Okay. Yes, we have a question in the chat. Uh, Can we please talk about helicobacter pylori? 
and its connection to the development of ulcers, is it really, you know, uh, can be eradicated only by antibiotics or there is alternative treatment? So, yes, Helicobacter pylori is an infamous bacteria who lives in the digestive tract of about half the population, the world's population, well, estimate. It's very common in Japan, in Costa Rica, you know, in, you know, in some specific populations. And, uh, yes, and in theory and practice too, um, it is related with stomach ulcers and cancer, you know, and acidity, reflux. And the way it is treated is with a triple therapy of antibiotics. Well, yeah, it's a very strong treatment. And um, that's the way that it is the only way that, you know, people or doctors will say that you can eradicate it. But actually there is data that suggests that, you know, with good gut health, you could get rid of this. And we go back like even our discussion uh, previous shows in the various mania, how, you know, if you strengthen your body with appropriate nutrients, with a good diet, by detoxing, you have a stronger defense system, immune system that could help you, you know, be, uh, protect you against the infection of these types of bacteria. And I, I, I read, you know, about it that, you know, some probiotics and good gut health could eradicate Helicobacter pylori. The problem is that most of the world's population, you know, they have a very crappy diet, you know, so mm -hmm. we don't see this in practice, but in theory, you could, you know, just take care of your gut health and maybe you'll take care of your acid reflux of your stomach ulcers and yeah. yeah. But, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it might actually be that it's, um, you know, this overgrowth of Helicobacter pylori is actually um, similar to what you see in dysbiosis in the gut. Um, there was actually a study back in 2008 that found, um, they, only, they only looked at 19 people, so more research needs to be done on it, but they found the blueprints of 128 different bacterial types that actually live in the stomach. Um, so, if you have an overgrowth of a pathogenic bacteria, what chances are what's happened is you've been killing off the good bacteria, and then the heliobacter is kind of um, uh, just growing out of uh, control. So, um, I, I, yeah, I concur with what Gabby says. Getting your diet back on track, maybe taking a probiotic supplement, something along those lines can be very, uh, very helpful for that. Yeah. And some people carry these bacteria, and they never have problems. It's just a specific mm -hmm. population that do fall with stomach ulcers, with really bad digestive problems, and eventually with gastric cancer. So, yes, going back to the diet, taking care of your gut, of, of your gut flora is the first thing I will try. Fermented foods also, you know, it's another mm -hmm. thing that we suggested that will help enormously just because it helps you, you know, regrow good gut bacteria. Yeah. I think going back to the article you were talking about too, Gabby, uh, apple cider vinegar um, with mm -hmm. your meals. Um, a lot of times the uh, overgrowth of H. pylori has to do with um, the uh, a lack of stomach acid, like not enough. People aren't producing enough stomach acid, so that allows that bacteria to kind of thrive. So I think, yeah, taking, taking uh, apple cider vinegar with your meals would be very helpful. And also adding healthy salt. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, speaking of bacteria, um, Erica, did you want to cover the, the hygiene hypothesis? You had mentioned that a little earlier. Yeah. So talking about bacteria and dirt and the gut, um, I wanted to mention kind of building on what Doug's article about the bleach talked about. So this obsession with cleanliness. Um, For those who may not know, the hygiene hypothesis um, is this idea, a hypothesis about a, a being too clean. But according to Wikipedia, you know, lack of early childhood exposure to infectious agents, symbiotic microorganisms in the gut flora, and parasites increase susceptibility to allergic diseases by suppressing natural development of the immune system. And we've carried a lot of information on, you know, the science page about uh, the microflora and good bacteria, and you can Google microflora on uh, to find more. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of articles. But this hy- hygiene hypothesis, they uh, have done a lot of research in kids. And um, one, one article that I found kind of interesting is uh, dirt can be good for children. Um, it was uh, kind of a write-up about a nature journal in the BBC carried this article in 2009, and it said children should be allowed to get dirty being too clean can impair the skin's ability to heal and uh, bugs dampen down overreactive uh, immune systems. And so the study's finding explains the hygiene hypothesis and the Dr. Levy um, goes into about how this idea of being obsessively clean um, has boosted allergies in developing countries. And he says that, uh, Exposure to germs is a good thing, and uh, as Doug was saying earlier, you know, especially children, they need to have dirt and bacteria and be exposed to it, whether it's, you know, uh, being barefoot or rolling around in the mud, and um, it actually builds your immune system to be exposed to these things, and um, it was kind of interesting. We had a a good article on the um, show about are on the uh, science page about how clean is sold to America with fake science. And you can find that under Science and Technology. And it talks about the Cleanliness Institute was established in 1927. It was originally the Association of America, American uh, Soap. Um, and it promoted keeping clean with soap con- um, consumption. And school children were the primary target. So you can check out that uh, article on Saad. It's it's good. It talks about, you know, this whole advertising campaign about halitosis and deodorant. And so we've kind of come to this place now where people are massive germaphobes. You know, you go into the shampoo department and there's hundreds of different types of shampoo and hundreds of different types of soap. And this obsession with hand sanitizers. And, you know, Hmm. um, children like to get dirty. And so it's really important that, you know, they're exposed to these types of germs. And it made me think of, 
you know, people who go down to Mexico and drink the water and they get sick if they're from a an industrialized nation, but that the people that actually live in Mexico can drink the water and not have that same issue, right? So it's it's your gut bacteria ad- adapts to your environment. And it's also an important part of eating foods, like Doug was saying, in your environment, like people who eat you know, the dirt that's still on the lettuce and whatnot, all those things are going to help build the the healthy bacteria in your gut and um, strengthen your immune system. And as Gabby had mentioned earlier, um, the uh, virus mania describes an interesting situation um, where they tried to um, raise mice in a completely sterile environment. And I'm just going to give you a little quote here. It's actually in Chapter 2 of um, Dr. Kernline's book, The Virus Mania, about how microbe hunters seize power. And, um, you know, he he talks about Pasteur, and you can listen to The Virus Mania show. It was a week before last. But um, basically everyone knows who Louis Pasteur is, Mm-hmm. And he had basically a downright fanatical hate of microbes, and he actually came from the ludicrous equation that healthy tissue equals a sterile, germ-free environment. He believed in all earnestness that bacteria could not be found in a healthy body, and that microbes flying through the air on dust particles were sp- responsible for all types of possible diseases. Um, in a book called Microbe Hunters by Paul DeCruyff, he says that he trumpeted his hopes out into the world that it must lie within human power to eliminate all disease caused by microbes from the face of the earth. And so he goes on to describe these, um, you know, these sterile mice and that they didn't live, like they lived for a week. And then in other experiments, You know, maybe some mice lived for a little bit longer, but the environment was so artificially generated and their food was, was, you know, de-sterilized. But he he even poses the question is they didn't really test to see if there was any bacteria at all. There was no way they could find it. So he says if nature really wanted us to be bacteria-free, nature would have created us bacteria-free. Germ-free mm-hmm. animals, which apparently aren't really germ-free, can only exist under artificial lab conditions, and that's not nature. The ecosystems of animals living under natural conditions, be it rodents or human beings, depend heavily upon the activities of bacteria, and this arrangement must have a purpose. So I found that really fascinating because you know, again, back to our fear of, of bugs and germs, it really is it's a symbiotic relationship that we have with with the environment that we live in. And like we covered in last week's show, this idea of earthing and, you know, getting your hands dirty. And there's so much information coming out about how this is an integral part of developing a healthy immune system. You know, we have what did it say? I know you guys were saying a hundred trillion bacteria, and um, it's those bacteria that we can thank for good health, you know. And kind mm-hmm. of just to add to uh, Tiffany's poop discussion, um, <laughs> <laughs> because I have to share, um, mm-hmm. half of your uh, your poop is actually microbial biomass. Mm-hmm. 
So it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. And maybe you guys want to go into a little bit more on that, but I found that I, um, I found that really fascinating. Yeah. It's mostly uh dead bacteria that should make up mm-hmm. your poop, maybe some trace amounts of fat and some trace amount of other undigested stuff, but it's mostly poop. I mean, bacteria in your poop. <laughs> so we are going to talk yeah. about the, the proper pooping position has anyone ever tried the the squatty potty? Because I guess in a Western world we have the the toilets. You know how the toilets are, but in other like Asian countries where I've been, they had just a a hole in the floor basically, and you squat down and you do your business. Mm-hmm. So the squatty potty kind of elevates your legs on the sides of your toilet and puts you in that position where it makes it easier for the poop to come out. So if you have like uh, any intestinal issues, um, lots of people reported benefits from pooping in that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's the natural yeah. position to be in. You know, when you think about it, sitting at a, like a ninety degree angle is not, mm-hmm. you know, conducive to how we evolved um, as far as uh, pooping goes. So yeah. you know, by being in a squat position. Your your legs are elevated and your um, your thighs are actually in contact with where the ascending and descending colon are, so they're kind of supporting yeah. it. Um, and you know you're not at, at a right angle. That's kind of a weird turn for for, mm-hmm. for your business to be coming out at. So by by <laughs> elevating your feet in that way, um, you're kind of you know making things a whole lot easier. Mm. Well, we ordered one of those so. I have to report ah. back on how it works. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, another thing, uh, another thing that I notice. Whoops. Yeah. Speaking of the vagus oh, nerve, if you're like a little backed up or feeling not relaxed enough to move your bowels while you're sitting there, you can try some pipe breaths, and <laughs> I've noticed that it actually works to kind of huh. get you going. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I've, I've had experience, uh, experience with the uh, the squatting, and uh, I can say with confidence it works much better. You you mm-hmm. feel completely cleaned out. Um, you feel like you've actually gone, as opposed to just kind of getting rid of uh, a little bit of what you had in there. And um, yeah. I mean, personally, I've uh, actually just uh, this maybe TMI, but since we're on the subject, basically just on the just balance on the toilet seat. Um, but that's just me, and I know that not everybody can do that. Um, mm-hmm. and you need, like, an apparatus. But like you had said earlier, just getting your feet up a little bit off the floor so that you're not in a straight 90-degree angle. So, like, just get a little footstool or something you can put in front of the toilet and get your feet up on. Um, yeah, there's all different. I mean, camping, if anybody's gone in the woods while they were out camping, I'm, I don't know if you've noticed that uh, it's much more efficient when you're just squatting in the woods. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and the scenery is better, too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you got to be careful not to uh, not to uh, pick up the bears. Make sure you go yeah. in the right place. <laughs> or pick up the wrong leaf to do your wiping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, Doug, did you want to talk a little bit more about um, you had some gut health issues that you wanted to cover before we were done here? Yeah, I wanted to go a little bit into the um, healing of the gut. Um, yeah. 
So when, if you are having any of these kinds of uh, gut issues, um, you know, and they do kind of manifest as things like, you know, uh, constipation, uh, diarrhea, you know, just uncomfortable digestion. I mean, ideally, your digestion, you shouldn't even feel it. It should just be going on in the background without your, your awareness at all. Um, so if you are having any kind of uh, issues, um, there's a few steps you can take to kind of get things back on track. Um, so returning the mi uh, microbial environment back to its normal state is, is essential. So um, one thing that I tend to recommend is uh, hydrochloric acid supplements um, or apple cider vinegar, um, as, as Gabby was mentioning at the beginning. Anything that's adding acidity to the stomach. Like I said, the um, low acid is pretty much uh, uh, chronic in, in this, uh, this day and age. Um, everybody seems to be suffering from it, and that's a result of poor poor diet, chlorinated water, like all these different things are, are interfering with our stomach acid production, low zinc levels as well. Um, so taking a supplement like that, just digestive enzymes as well, just to make sure that you are digesting all your food properly. Everything is getting broken down the way it should. Um, that will do um, wonders for making sure that your microbial environment is not um, being damaged. Uh, taking probiotic supplements uh, is always a good idea. Um, I will go a little bit into the specific strains, um, well, a couple of the strains that are, are um, very beneficial. Um, avoiding event, uh, conventional meats and vegetables um, due to by antibiotic, uh, pesticide, and herbicide contamination. Um, avoiding sugar. Uh, avoiding things that damage the gut, like uh, grains, legumes. Um, uh, at the very least, go paleo, if not full ketogenic. Um, you know, the paleo diet, you avoid a lot of the uh, damaging foods that, uh, that tend to, uh, um, you know, hurt the microbial environment. Um, fermented foods is another thing that's, uh, that's a good idea. Like I mentioned before, best way to do fermented foods is to ferment them yourself because a lot of the ones you're getting from the grocery store and stuff will be pasteurized, um, meaning they have no uh, probiotic content whatsoever. Um, there actually is a protocol, and this kind of gets a little bit icky, but um, they've, they've uh, started doing what are called uh, fecal transplants. And that is exactly what it sounds like when you're actually taking the fecal matter from uh, a healthy subject and transplanting it into um, a, uh, a person suffering from some sort of dysbiosis. Um, it's still kind of in the experimental stages at this point. You don't, you don't see it happening very often. Um, obviously, I mean, it, it makes sense because like, like we were just saying before, um, what, what was it, Tiffany, like 50% of the, the fecal matter is actually bacteria or something right. along those lines anyway. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, so it, it actually makes sense. You know, you are introducing, um, you know, it's not just one or two strains either. You're, you're introducing the entire bacterial environment from one patient into another. So um, mm -hmm. I won't even get into the uh, technical details of how they exactly do it, because like I say, it does get a little bit icky. Um, also, yeah, there are... Gives, yeah, sorry, go ahead. It gives new meaning to the phrase, putting up with someone else's shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. Yep. <laughs> uh, there's different things you can do as well to heal uh, from a leaky gut. Um I, I won't go too much into it here because leaky gut is a huge topic and we could probably do an entire show all about it at some point, um, and we probably will. So um, I'll just say a, a few things that are very good for the gut. Um, bone broth. 
you know, we, we've talked a lot about bone broth on the show before. Um, it has so much in it that is good for um, healing tissues in general, but also healing the digestive tract. Um, you know, anything that's causing inflammation in, in your diet needs to be gotten rid of. So like I said before, grains, legumes, dairy products, um, yeah, coffee, I know, unfortunately, um, anything that could be causing some sort of uh, inflammation or damage uh, to the gut. So going paleo is, is a great way to heal the gut. Um, a few supplements, uh, glutamine, very good for healing the leaky gut. Um, aloe, uh, taking an aloe juice is a very good idea. Um, you might not want to go with the whole leaf aloe juice uh, because that does have um, a laxative effect. Um, you know, maybe you do want it. I don't know. Um, I guess it depends on your, your personal situation. But going with um, the inner fillet um, is, is a better way to go because it doesn't have the, it still has the gut healing uh, properties, but it doesn't have the, um, the laxative effect. So um, that's just a few. I mean, you could do anti-inflammatory uh, supplements too, like turmeric, uh, the extract of turmeric called the curcumin, uh, boswellia. Those things are all anti-inflammatory in there. Um, quite good for it. Um, there's a couple of um, beneficial uh, probiotic strains that I just wanted to cover quite uh, quickly here. Um, one really beneficial strain is called Saccharomyces boulardii, um, sometimes just shortened to S. boulardii. Uh, and it's actually a strain of non-pathogenic yeast. It's not actually a bacteria. Um, it has decades of use uh, in the treatment of inflammatory gastrointestinal diseases, um, both acute and chronic. Uh, it modulates the host immune response, uh, both locally and systemically. So it helps with things like uh, um, allergies um, or autoimmune disease. Uh, it prevents pathogens from adhering to the intestinal lining. Um, and that's, that's really interesting, actually, by preventing the pathogens. You, you find Saccharomyces boulardii in a lot of travel probiotics, um, you know, ones where you're going to maybe a tropical place where, you know, they, they tell you, oh, don't drink the water. Um, you know, where you're always uh, worried about getting some kind of uh, food poisoning. Um, but taking uh, Saccharomyces boulardii can actually um, uh, give you kind of a prophylactic effect against those things. So it's a good idea to be taking that. You start taking it a couple of days before you leave on your trip and then continue to take it throughout the trip. Uh, it can be very helpful. Um, it also regulates microbial homeostasis. Um, stabilizes gut barrier function. So it's effective against leaky gut as well. It's also really effective against almost any type of diarrhea. So that includes uh, from antibiotic usage, um, acute or persistent diarrhea, food poisoning, traveler's diarrhea, even HIV-associated diarrhea. There's been a, um, uh, there was a study on that and it showed that Saccharomyces boulardii was effective against it. Um, also good against uh, C. difficile, um, Heliobacter pylori has been found to be helpful for Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, parasitic infections. Um, yeah, so that's that's definitely a good one to have in your in your uh, repertoire. Um, another one that's getting a lot of attention recently is Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. Um, there are other strains of rhamnosus, but the GG one is getting a lot of uh, studies done on it, and, and they're finding some pretty amazing stuff. Um, it has little, uh, what are called tili, or like little hairs, which help it to atta attach to the colon wall. Um, it, it uh, encourages the growth of other species of beneficial bacteria. 
Um, it does uh, survive both stomach acidity and it is biostable, so it does get all the way down to where it needs to get alive. Um, modulates the immune system in allergic type conditions. It uh, reduces the incidence of gastrointestinal symptoms and gut permeability. Um, it's actually been found to be really helpful in weight loss as well. So it got a lot of uh, press recently because Dr. Oz talked about it at one point as being a good uh, a good thing to be do to do for uh, weight loss. And of course, that probably shot its popularity through the roof. Um, it is. Decreases the incidence of the eczema in uh, children. Um, I've got a huge list of things here. I'll, I'll probably skip over some of this stuff because um, it, it, you know, it, it's basically the miracle probiotic. It does uh, so much good stuff. Um, yeah. One other one called, oh, sorry. No, I just want to mention that I went to a talk by one of the pioneers of this research of lactobacillus from Nosus GD. Specifically, it's a specific strain from lactobacillus rhamnosus. We have the DD at the end. And the mm -hmm. clinical research is massive and it's so good. You know, children with very serious conditions were able to heal, you know, just by taking these probiotics. They didn't even change their diet. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good one to experiment with. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it even um, has, uh, it will reduce C reactive protein levels, which indicates that it's actually an anti inflammatory. Um, and it also has uh, beneficial effects on your blood, blood lipid profiles. So, yeah, it's, it's really kind of a miracle one. Um, one other one, Lactobacillus plantarum. Um, that's one that you actually find in a lot of fermented foods. So if you're eating your homemade sauerkraut, your homemade kimchi, um, that one actually, uh, Lactobacillus plantarum, is probably in there. Um, it produces biotin in the colon. Um, it reduces intestinal permeability, so that's another word for leaky gut. Um, it improves uh, symptoms in IBS patients. Um, also improves lipid profiles for um, hypercholesterolemic adults, so um, helps get your cholesterol levels back on track. Um, it may offer protection against upper respiratory tract infections. Um, it also produces folate. Um, and it, uh, much like the other strains I mentioned, also encourages um, beneficial species. Um, like, you know, it encourages an environment that will help to grow other beneficial species. Um, the last one I'll cover here is Bifidobacteria bifidus. Um, it's really good at adhering to the intestinal wall and keeping out pathogens um, and protecting uh, against their negative effects. It uh, actually increases gut mucus uh, production because it, it feeds on it. It actually eats the gut mucus, and that in turn leads your gut to create more mucus. Um, and that increases protection in the, in the gut from uh, pathogens or anything kind of damaging. Um, it'll help uh, repair damage and strengthen the intestinal tight junctions. So again, that deals with leaky gut. Um, yeah, just by, by kind of, you know, closing those holes that, uh, that might be there because of uh, leaky gut. And uh, finally, it alleviates or significantly improves IBS symptoms. So those are just four strains that, you know, you're in the store um, looking at the different probiotics. You might want to take a look at the back and, you know, see what, um, what strains are in there and kind of look for some of these ones because these are the ones that have really, um, you know, been studied and, and found to be quite effective. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. That was really informative. We're, um, 
We are uh, coming up on our time a little bit here, but we have time left for Zoya's uh, pet health segment. And then our recipe for today is going to be homemade sauerkraut since we were talking about fermented foods and probiotics. You go over how to make your own sauerkraut out of uh, very simply cabbage and salt and water. So it's really easy to do. Um, but for now, here is Zoya, and uh, we will be back after the pet health segment. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the pet health segment of the health and wellness show. Today we are going to talk a bit about vitamins, fat soluble vitamins in particular, and also about doggy kisses. First some general info and historical facts. As many of you know, there are fat soluble vitamins and water soluble vitamins. And while water soluble vitamins can be accumulated in the body, fat soluble vitamins do indeed accumulate in the body and are being stored primarily in the fat tissue and liver. Interestingly enough, this fact has been known to humanity for a very long time. For example, Hippocrates advocated using liver to cure night blindness. Now we know that lack of vitamin A causes the night blindness. There is also the Ebers papyrus that suggests placing drops of crushed and roasted ox liver in the eyes of people suffering from night blindness. We don't know if Egyptians were aware of vitamin A specifically, but somehow knew that liver has high levels of the vitamin which help maintain, uh, to maintain normal vision in dim light. There are also many stories and documented cases that talk about soldiers suffering from similar problems and deficiencies when butter and eggs were excluded from the rations. Another example would be uh, beriberi, paralytic disease of many Asians due to their dietary habits of eating polished rice. It is now known that the unpolished rice is rich in the vitamin, uh, vitamin B1 theamine. Low theamine levels were the real cause of beriberi and simple diet change could cure the paralysis. So what, what vitamins are fat soluble? This would be vitamin A, D, E and K. So some facts about vitamin A. Vitamin A has many roles. It is important for vision and other functions. Deficiencies lead to poor and low light vision, um, as I said before, termed night blindness, retarded growth, muscle weakness, poor quality skin and hair development, and reproductive failure. Vitamin A has several forms, and it depends on its source. Retinol is one of the animal forms of vitamin A, meaning you can find it uh, in this form only in animal products such as fish oil, egg yolks, liver, butter, and other. Plants also have vitamin A, but in the form of carotenes, for example, beta-carotene. Carotene is the substance in carrots, pumpkins, and sweet potatoes that colors them orange and is the most common form of carotene in plants. The catch with carotene that it can be utilized by the organism as vitamin A only after being converted in the body. The problem with, this, uh, with that is that carnivores can't assimilate plant carotene and have to get their vitamin A only from animal products such as liver, meaning that you can give your dog or cat tons of carrots and they uh, can still suffer from vitamin A deficiency. That's why when your pet is on raw food diet 
or on any diet for that matter, it's important to make sure that 10% of the diet contains foods like beef liver and egg yolks. Vitamin A is also necessary to the growing puppy. Infants, infants are born with no liver storage of the vitamin. The colostrum, uh, meaning first milk, is rich in vitamin A and provides an important first source. So if your puppy didn't have a chance to have colostrum, consider supplementing with vitamin A. But as with everything else, do it carefully before, uh, b because over-supplementing can cause toxicity. Now let's talk about vitamin D. Unlike humans who get vitamin D both from exposure to sunlight and through certain foods and dietary supplements, dogs don't, uh, don't produce vitamin D in the skin, so diet alone must supply all their uh, vitamin D requirements. Vitamin D is essential for proper functioning of the human heart, and research has found a direct link between vitamin D deficiency and congestive heart failure. Canine heart disease is either acquired or con uh, congenital, uh, with a vast majority of cases, about 95% in the acquired category. It is estimated up to 60% of aging dogs have a heart problem. Food sources of vitamin D include uh, halibut and other fish, cod liver oil, liver and eggs. And it's best to supplement your pets with vitamin D through food than by giving them synthetic vitamins, because despite evidence that dogs with heart disease may benefit from vitamin D therapy, what every dog owner should keep in mind is that vitamin D toxicity is actually much more common than vitamin D deficiency. As for vitamin E, vitamin E is also highly concentrated in meats such as liver and fat. All of the functions of vitamin E are not known, but it plays a role in the formation of cell membranes cell respiration, and in the metabolism of fats. It is an antioxidant and protects various hormones from oxidation. Deficiencies of vitamin E will cause cell damage and death in skeletal muscle, heart, testes, liver, and nerves. It is essential in keeping the cells of these organs alive and functioning. Vitamin E deficiencies have been document well documented in both dogs and cats. The brown bowel syndrome is the condition usually used to describe a dog or a cat suffering from inadequate vitamin E. These animals have affected bowels which ulcerate, hemorrhage, and degenerate. In addition, the cells of the eyes and testes can also be affected. It is known to be also good for skin and coat, and it is also usually part of the milk thistle, thistle oil supplement, a very good hepatic protector. As you can see, including a bit uh, of beef liver and maybe cod liver in your pet's diet is essential, and also other internal organs. Don't forget uh, that in the wild, carnivores eat the prey whole, and this way get all the necessary nutrients. Now about the last fat-soluble vitamin K. Vitamin K exists in three forms. Vitamin K1 is found in green plants. Vitamin K2 is high in fish meal and can be synthesized by the bacteria in the intestine. Vitamin K is a synthetic uh, precursor of the others. Vitamin K3 is the form usually utilized as a supplement. Vitamin K is essential for normal blood functions. Without vitamin K, blood cannot clot. Most rat and mouse poisons kill rats and mice by eliminating the ability to clot blood, 
hence the rodents internally hemorrhage to death. Contained within the poison is the active ingredient coumarin, or a de a derivative of coumarin. It is the coumarin that binds to and depletes the body of active vitamin K. Without vitamin K in the, in the blood, cannot, it, it cannot clot in the rodents' dye. Unfortunately, dogs and cats, uh, well, maybe cats less, also can ingest this poison. So, if it happens, it's important to note that in case of rat poisoning by anticoagulant agents, supplementing with K3 is essentially useless and you must administer K1. Since the bacteria in the intestine can manufacture vitamin K, it is not needed in high levels in food supplements. But it's also good to remember that vitamin K is more similar to water-soluble vitamins in that that it can be accumulated in the body and is being assimilated uh, only in the presence of bile. Therefore, if your pet has problems with uh, gastrointestinal tract and problems of malabsorption, it can affect absorption of uh, vitamin K2. And this is where you may have a problem, especially when you are trying to save your pet after ingestion of rat poison. If your pet's body is already compromised due to bad diet, it may affect their recovery chances. Well, this is it for the vitamins part. And now I would like to share with you information from very interesting research I read about the other day. A team of researchers at the University of Arizona is setting out to determine whether dog saliva can be good for human health. Everyone who has a dog knows the positive effect they can have on their mood and well-being. But this new study will focus on the boost dogs may have on the human immune system. The researchers involved in this study believe that microbes exchanged between dogs and people may have a positive probiotic effect on the human body that helps our overall health. Essentially, they think that dogs might work as probiotics to enhance the health of the bacteria that live in our guts. These bacteria, or microbiota, are increasingly recognized as playing an essential role in our mental and physical health, especially as we age. Other studies have shown that dogs and their owners share much of the same gut bacteria over time, which helps people worried of allergies. Another study by Finnish scientists found that babies in homes with dogs were found to have fewer colds, fewer ear infections, and need fewer antibiotics in their first year of life than babies raised in pet-free homes. Well, as positive as the effects of microbes may be from dog saliva, other studies have shown that there are also potential negative effects from kissing a pet. Some research indicates that pets could pass uh, on uh, gum disease, uh, whereas others are investigating the potential for animals to pass on antibiotic-resistant infections to humans. That said, the multidisciplinary study planned at the University of Arizona surely sounds fascinating. The dogs may actually help humans feel better on a biological, on biological level is an exciting notion. Well, this is it for today, and I hope that you found the information interesting and useful. Goodbye, and have a nice day. Awesome. Thanks, Zoya. That was a great segment. So we now know that uh, <laughs> when your dog is licking your kid's face, you should not stop the dog. <laughs> no. Depending on what they just said. Depending on what they just ate, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, so our um, our recipe for today is uh, homemade sauerkraut. Uh, it's incredibly easy to make. It's a little bit of a process, but the ingredients are uh, very simple. Um, so what you want uh, for materials is basically a large bowl, um, preferably something uh, either like stainless or uh, ceramic bowl or glass. It work fine. Um, and then you want a, a crock that the uh, the cabbage is going to go into. So a crock is, I mean, I'm sure most people are aware, but it's uh, generally a, a, a tall, wide mouth, round container. Um, it can be made also from ceramic or glass. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I find uh, uh, oftentimes like uh, just the, the general store, you know, or a supermarket will have crocks available or else you can order them online. Um, so look for something that's, you know, two to three gallons uh, for a larger batch, but this can also be done in mason jars as well if you have mason jars laying around. So um, sauerkraut is a uh, anaerobic fermentation, which means that uh, the, the vegetable matter does not come into contact with the air. It needs to be submerged underneath the brine. Um, so in order to start making this, you start with uh, two medium cabbage heads. Now you can up or down this recipe uh, to your liking. Um, we usually go with about two, two heads of cabbage. It can be done with white or red cabbage. Um, red crowd is really cool. It comes out with these deep violet colors, so it's kind of fun as well. Um, but so two medium heads is about two to two and a half pounds each, so you're looking at four to five total pounds. Um, remove the core from the cabbage and then finally shred or finally uh, chop the cabbage with a knife. Um, and get it into small strips, or else you can shred it with a grater or something similar. And then you want, for, for this four to five pounds of cabbage, you want two tablespoons of sea salt or real salt. Um, you don't want to use table salt for this. You want some kind of either a mineral salt or unrefined sea salt for this. So <clears throat> take the cabbage, put it into the large bowl, um, sprinkle the salt that you have over top of it and mix it together with your hands. And while you're mixing it, you want to be squeezing the cabbage um, as firmly as you can because you're breaking down the cellular structure of the cabbage and releasing the water that's held inside the cabbage. Um, so as you do this, you'll notice the, uh, the salt and your squeezing action on the cabbage releases the moisture. Um, and actually, sometimes you, this is not necessary per se, but a lot of people will salt the cabbage first, let it sit for about a half hour to an hour uh, so that it begins to sweat, and then start massaging it. Um, but you can really do it either way. It's just if you let it sit first, it becomes a little bit easier. The salt breaks down, and, and uh, the cabbage makes it sweat. It's moisture. So once you've um, kind of thoroughly massaged all the cabbage in the bowl with the salt, um, put it into the crock, and... Use your hands. Uh, oftentimes, I'll make a fist and kind of reach down and and kind of uh, gradually mash it all towards the bottom, so that the moisture comes up and um, uh, covers the the vegetable material. Um, so as you're doing this, you'll notice that um, if you do it properly, the amount of moisture or water that's in the cabbage is enough to actually cover it in the jar. Sometimes you need to add a little bit of water on the end, but um, you shouldn't really need to. If you do use uh, distilled water for this, um, just to make sure that it's clean. Um, so you want, after you're done mashing all the cabbage down, you want to release all of the air that's held up in 
the you know the little pieces of cabbage that are mashed under the water. So you don't want any bubbles underneath there. You want to mash it down really thoroughly. Um, once it's all kind of packed and you have a layer of, of water over top of the cabbage, um, you can do various things. Uh, it, sometimes it's kind of hard to get it all packed down so that it stays under the water. You can take a, a sterilized uh, stone. If you have like a wide stone, um, you can boil that or heat it in the oven to sterilize it. Once it's cooled down, then put that in there. You can also use a plate or like a glass plate or something that's weighted to hold the vegetable matter under the water. Um, once you've done that, uh, basically then you just cover the crock with a uh, cloth, like a towel or a cheesecloth, and then a rubber band around the outside to hold that down because um, you want to keep uh, as much material as you can from coming into the jar. You don't want this free-floating stuff in the, in the room coming into the jar, but you do want it to be able to breathe. Um, but this is actually also optional. Uh, I've read some stories about people that also use an airlock, which is uh, similarly used in brewing like beer or wine, where you have a big glass jar and then you have the airlock at the top, and that allows air, uh, pressurized air to escape the container without allowing anything back in. The difference between these two is that if you use a cloth over your jar, you'll notice that every few days you get a little bit of scum on top of the water which is completely natural, and you can go in there with a spoon and basically just scrape that off, um, discard it. You can flush it or you can put it in the compost um, and then put the towel back on. If you do, if you do use an airlock, uh, you'll get less of that scum showing up, uh, little to no scum, actually, and you can just let it ferment and not have to worry about that very much. But some people do like to taste the kraut as it's fermenting, and so if you're using an airlock and you remove it, you've essentially defeated the purpose of using the airlock. So if you do use an airlock, it's, it's hard to get in there and taste it as it's preventing. Um, so once you have everything kind of mashed down, the cabbage is under the brine in either your mason jar or your large crock and you have it covered, um, just throw it into a cabinet or in the corner of your kitchen or wherever it's kind of out of the way and let it sit for anywhere from one to two weeks up to even six months uh, it, it will stay, as long as it stays out of, con the, the vegetable matter stays out of contact with the air, it stays below the liquid, um, then you're going to be fine. The lactic acid that's created in this uh, fermentation process kills off the harmful microorganisms and uh, other bacteria that are in there uh, and creates its own beneficial culture. So this fermentation creates a lot of probiotics that are beneficial for healing the gut. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard us mention throughout the show that eating sauerkraut is beneficial. This is a really rewarding way um, to make your own, and it's, it, there's, there's very little that compares to unveiling the kraut that you've made and kind of let it sit there for a month or so and then tasting it, see how it tastes. Um, and just a quick note as well, it's a, a popular German sauerkraut recipe to include caraway seed um, in the solution. So you can throw in like a teaspoon or a couple of teaspoons of caraway seed when you're mixing everything together. And that gives it a nice um, kind of rounded out tart flavor. So um, you can also experiment with uh, carrots, uh, ginger, anything else that lacto-ferments. Just look up lacto-fermentation on Google and you'll find a lot of results for that. But I would encourage everybody to try making their own kraut. Cabbage is cheap, salt is cheap, and it's very easy to make. So that's and our, yummy. Uh, yeah. That's our recipe for today. Um, oh, I had a quick note as well. Um, back in the day, 
they uh, they used to make very large batches of sauerkraut, and so in order to get the proper force to get the cabbage under the water, they would actually stamp it down with their feet. And there are some people who mm. say that the bacteria from your feet actually aid in the fermentation process, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's up to each person to decide whether or not they want to do that. Just make sure they're clean. <laughs> Toe jam sauerkraut. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so that's we are uh, we are right almost at two hour mark, so that's our show. Um, for today. Thanks everybody for listening and we will be back next week Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern.